I invite you to turn in God's holy word to the gospel according to Luke chapter 4 and then chapter 22 this morning. In connection with that, we will read our confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, an explanation of what the second request of the Lord's Prayer means, thy kingdom come. Luke chapter 4, we'd like to begin reading God's word at verse 31, verse 31 of Luke 4, speaking about Jesus, it says, God's word says, then he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is. For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, but Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and served them. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, Who are you? You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. And if you turn to chapter 22, then later on in Christ's ministry, in fact, the last week of his life here, in fact, the night before his death, We read at Luke chapter 22, at verse 14, as Christ comes to the Passover and to the institution of the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, at verse 14, in the upper room. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then at verse 31, at verse 31 of the same chapter, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. We end the scripture reading there. I invite you to turn in the smaller book, the Forms and Prayers book, to page 255. Page 255 in our study of the Lord's Prayer. If you're visiting with us, our confession here is the Heidelberg Catechism, a 16th century confession that's just really a summary of God's Word to help us learn what God's Word means, kind of used as a teaching tool. And on page 255, question 123 asks, what does the second petition of the Lord's Prayer mean? And the answer is that your kingdom come, that petition means... Rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. And do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. Let's ask for God's blessing this morning, shall we? O Lord, our God, God of light, we confess that all is foggy, all is darkness, until you call us out of darkness into your wonderful light. And it's we, Lord, who need the radiance of the Lord Jesus throughout our lives and even this morning. And so we pray for the illumination of your spirit, for the brightness of your face. We pray your word be clear and preach clearly to us and that you would give us the clarity of faith to see its wisdom, to embrace it, to believe it. We pray you'll do good things in your church today through your holy word. And we ask this for your glory and praise through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, there's many things in the world that trouble us. Maybe you're troubled about the election of the past week. Maybe you're troubled about the direction of your nation. Maybe you're troubled by your finances. Maybe you're troubled by health concerns. There's many things that trouble us. And there was a young man centuries ago who had every reason to be troubled. The church was in a bad state. The church had been disobedient to God. The church was under God's judgment. He, at 16 years old himself, had been kidnapped and carried off to a foreign land. But though he had many reasons to be troubled, he received a night vision. And he saw this this statue, this image of a man, the head made of gold, the chest made of silver, and the belly and thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. And then he saw this stone that was cut out of the hill, not by human hands. And it came and it demolished that statue, and it pulverized it to dust, and the wind blew the dust away, and the remains of the statue were nowhere to be seen. And then that rock grew and grew and grew until it filled the whole earth. That was... The vision King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had. And that was the vision God gave to Daniel so he could know what vision the king had. And to Daniel, God gave the interpretation. That statue represented the kingdoms of the world. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon was the great empire. And after them will come other empires. But the thing that matters is this stone cut without human hands. It represents the kingdom that God, the God of heaven, would establish And it will destroy every kingdom, and it will fill the whole earth, and it will last forever and ever. Now, does that understanding of the kingdom matter? The book of Daniel goes on to tell us, doesn't it, 
Daniel's friends knew it mattered. Daniel's friends, when commanded to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, refused, even when threatened with being thrown in the fiery furnace. And Daniel, when an edict was made that no one should pray to anyone but the king for 30 days, Daniel went home and opened his window and prayed to the Lord, despite threats of the lion's den. Brothers and sisters, we may be troubled about many things, but the thing that makes all the difference in the world is this. Do we believe that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is established by God, that it will fill the whole earth and it will endure forever, and all the kingdoms of men will come ultimately to nothing? The kingdom of Christ is what we're honored to pray for. It's an amazing thing that God invites us to join in his cause by praying, your kingdom come. May that stone grow and fill the earth. May your kingdom come. There is no prayer that is more certain. There's no prayer that's more victorious. There's no prayer that is more worth praying. Let's consider that this morning, how to pray your kingdom come. I'd like to notice that praying that prayer means we we take note of four facets of the kingdom. First of all, the joy of the kingdom. Secondly, the growth of the kingdom. Thirdly, the enemies of the kingdom. And finally, the triumph of the kingdom. Let's think first about the joy of the kingdom. If I, if I ask you this morning of, of what joy or happiness does this kingdom consist? What is the joy or happiness of the kingdom? What, what would you say? You might say, well, well, remind me again, what is the kingdom? Kind of obscure. We don't live in the United Kingdom. We live in the United States of America. We don't speak about kingdoms. What's this kingdom stuff? Well, the kingdom is very simple. The kingdom is the rule or reign of the king. Or to say a little more precisely, it's the rule of God by the word of God in our hearts. Now, God is supreme everywhere. In that sense, God is as sovereign upon the earth as he is in heaven. He's sovereign over everything. But the kingdom of God is where that rule of God is received and obeyed. Wherever people serve the Lord, that's where the kingdom is. Wherever hearts submit to him, that's the kingdom. The kingdom is a people under the rule of Christ. So the kingdom of God is not some geopolitical kingdom. It's not a a nation state that's bound to a piece of land. But the kingdom of God is wherever Christ rules in a heart. There it's found. Now, what is the happiness of this kingdom? Well, as you can imagine, the happiness of any kingdom is its king. Is the king good? Then the kingdom is happy. Is the king bad? Then the kingdom is not so happy. My children have been watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy over the past few weeks, I think, a little bit each night, and I've caught some of those parts. But one thing that that the trilogy does really well, if you've seen it, and I suppose Tolkien's books do as well, is capture the difference between good power and wicked power, right? Wicked power is portrayed as ugly, right? Who can forget the orcs? I mean, they need to see the dentist. They, they're empty, vacuous creatures. They're, they're yucky, but good power, right? The wizard. What Gandalf, what, what beauty, what faithfulness, what life, what love. There's a, a great contrast. Well, who's the king of the kingdom that we're praying for? Is he an ugly king or is he a lovely king? Well, Luke chapter 4 sets him before us in all of his beauty, right? He's teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath and the people are astonished. He speaks with authority. And then there's a man in the synagogue that's possessed of a demon. Satan has, has, has captured his life. 
And Christ casts the demon out, and the man is not hurt. And then Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house, and his mother-in-law is sick, and Jesus rebukes the fever, and it leaves her, and she's restored to service. And then that evening, everybody who has sick people in their house, they, they come to Jesus, and he touches them, and he heals them. And you begin to say, what a beneficent king. He loves to heal. He loves to restore. He loves to set free. This is his character. This is his nature. This is good power. And then Jesus says, he has to leave. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. Now Christ is going to go forward preaching the kingdom. What's he going to preach? Well, he's going to preach himself. By his words and by his miracles, he's going to show himself and say, here's what the king looks like. And in that way, the kingdom comes. You see, because you see, the, the kingdom is the saving reign of God that breaks in upon a broken world. The kingdom of God is the reign of grace and mercy that invades this world to save it and deliver it and restore it. This power of God, this rule of God comes into our lives. Christ is the king. He doesn't come to to enslave. He doesn't come to brutally oppress. He doesn't come to harm. Satan does all of that, right? Satan loves to destroy. Satan loves to wreak havoc. Satan loves to make people fall apart. Their lives, their marriages, their homes... Christ comes to take away sin and put sinners back into fellowship with God. Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom. And so what is the joy of the kingdom? Well, the joy of the kingdom is to know this king. It's to walk with this king. It's to be in fellowship with this king. That's the joy of this kingdom. No one knows the joy of the kingdom except those who have been born again, right? If you haven't been born again, you won't see the kingdom, Jesus said. It's only when the regenerating power of the Spirit gives a new heart that one is able to see the goodness and glory of this King and to embrace him in faith as one's salvation. And so the kingdom begins in the heart. Simply sitting in church this morning doesn't make us a kingdom citizen. Simply being born in a Christian home or going to a Christian school doesn't make you a kingdom citizen. But it's when your heart embraces Christ that you are a citizen, a subject of his kingdom. In any place where one who is dead in sin is made alive in Jesus, he sees Christ, who is the joy of the kingdom, and he submits to the lordship of Jesus. Now that's important, right? If we are outside the kingdom, then we're being summoned by the word to come to the king. Right? For all those who are outside the kingdom, who are not bowed down to Jesus, it's a summons to come and to confess sin and fall at his feet and say, Save me. Be my king. Give me your grace. But even for Christians, you know what? This is a daily summons to yield to Jesus. And if, if Christ, knowing Christ, walking with Christ is the joy of the kingdom, then that means that for us believers, the closer we walk with Jesus, the more joy we have. And any act of rebellion is a forfeiture of joy or, an ex- or part of the experience of that joy. You see, the first thing we're praying, as we confess in the catechism there, your kingdom come means rule us 
by your word and spirit. So more and more we submit to you. So Christians are not to be content with, with where they're at in relationship to Christ in this sense that they're always wanting to become more submissive to Christ. We diminish our joy in our king with every act of rebellion in our lives. And realizing that is a good way to fight off temptation and sin, right? As you're presented with a choice, the choice to be angry at someone and lash out, or the choice to be gracious. And the flesh says, I, I want to get them. And I'm going to have pleasure in being mad at them then we can say to ourselves, if I take that choice, that choice of rebellion against my king, it will diminish my joy in my king. I am forfeiting something of the experience of joy in my king by making that choice. You see? Boys and girls, as you think about talking back to your parents or disobeying what they've spoken to you, If you choose to disobey Jesus and go your own way, then you're turning aside from him who is the joy of the kingdom. So in our sin, we can say to ourselves, though the sinful way seems pleasurable, I'm enticed to go that way, my my flesh wants that way. In my heart of hearts, I want Jesus more. I want to know more of Christ. I want to walk closer to him. So help me, Lord, to submit myself to Christ. That's the prayer. That's what we're to plead to our Savior. Christ is king. We want to follow him in all of life. We want to follow him from our youngest years to our oldest years. You know, as we grow up, young people, young adults, and you begin to think about career choices, this is an important one, isn't it? To say, not... Not, may I yield to my own ambitions and dreams, but may I yield to Christ. Jesus, show me where I can best serve your kingdom. Let me not be ruled by pretender kings like money or popularity or winning a name for myself. Let me serve the king. This is also why we emphasize raising our children and teaching our children in a God-centered way, right? Christian schooling is born out of this idea, this truth, that Christ is the ruler of all things. Remember Abraham Kuyper, the statesman, theologian in Holland, the Netherlands, said 140, 150 years ago, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine, it's mine. Christ lays claim to all the world. And so as children are raised as kingdom citizens, they're being taught, right, that, that there's no facet of this creation. It doesn't matter if we're talking about history or science or math or sexuality or physical fitness. That's outside of the reign of Jesus. We want to yield to Christ in every area. So we don't want our children taught that history is meaningless or that science is the route of salvation. Or that human sexuality is simply a form of self-expression. We want them to yield to Christ in every area. So we pray that. Lord, help us to submit. But as we see the joy of the kingdom, submitting to Christ, let's consider, secondly, the growth of the kingdom. We're praying, secondly, preserve and increase your church. Keep your church loyal and faithful. Let your citizens press on with their king and not turn from him. But Lord, also... 
Increase your church. Grow your church. Let your kingdom spread. Let the reign of the Lord Jesus conquer more hardened hearts and bring them in to the citizenship of the kingdom and to the membership of the church. If you, I don't know how many of you were able to watch, but during Synod, uh, I think it was Wednesday night, some weeks ago, they had a, a missions presentation where they let each church planter and each missionary speak for all of, I think, three minutes each. But it was a rapid fire, each getting up to, to tell the, what the Lord is doing in their work. And it was really an a invigorating night to, to hear all these little glimpses of, of God's work throughout North America and throughout the world and to think, wow. This kingdom of the Lord Jesus is expansive. And these are just the reports from one little denomination. But think of how many works, how many preaching stations, how many assemblies are being gathered of worshipers for the king. Everywhere Christ is lifting up his scepter and calling people to bow down to him and to find mercy beneath his reign. And so we we ought to teach our children to be excited about this. We have to confess as parents that we don't always do that. We, by our example, teach our children to be excited about many things, about what's for supper and about who's playing who in football. But we don't always teach them to be excited, do we, about the enterprise of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Why is it exciting? We we need to tell our children it's exciting because more and more people are coming to bow down to Jesus and to give him glory. Those who have been taken captive by Satan are being set free. His house is being plundered. God is is being restored in the hearts of his people. Or as Colossians 1 puts it, we've been delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred into the kingdom of the son of his love. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. What a joy. Who would you rather hang out with, an orc? The beauty of the Lord Jesus comes to restore what's broken. We're all to have an interest in this kingdom. Out of love for our lost neighbors, having compassion upon their lives, and out of love for our great king, we are to care. And if our impulse is to breeze past missionary reports, hit the delete button, throw them in the garbage, then we have to remind ourselves, actually, actually that's the important thing. What I want to do, where I'm headed right now, that's actually not the most important thing. But the advance of the kingdom of Jesus is the thing that will last forever and ever and ever. And that's not just reading about missionary reports in Honduras or Italy or Turkey. We're to have an interest in the growth of the kingdom of Christ in Salem and in the communities in which we live and work. And you see, to pray the kingdom of prayer is is to be reminded at times that we get a little too turned in upon ourselves, a little too ingrown circle gets a little tight. We're quite happy and quite cozy right here with these people. 
but to pray thy kingdom come is to lift up our eyes and to say, Lord, it's not about us. It's about your advance. It's about needy sinners out there. Lord, let us pray that our congregation will be a bright light in this community and those living in darkness will be called out of darkness and into the light. And so we work and we pray for that because we are to hunger for that as citizens of Christ's kingdom. And we want to say this week, don't we, to anyone who will listen, let me tell you, let me tell you about a good king. Let me tell you about a lovely king, a glorious king, how good he is. He's died to save sinners. But then thirdly, we must notice that not everyone is in favor of this, and so you'll face opposition, because thirdly, there are enemies of the kingdom. There are enemies of the kingdom. And so we pray thirdly, destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Sometimes what's celebrated as Halloween in our Culture becomes at times a moment to treat lightly demons and death. But it's not make-believe and pretend this kingdom of darkness. How many lives aren't victims of this kingdom of darkness? How many people aren't enslaved to themselves, to their pleasure? to substances? How many homes and lives are torn apart by demonic activity, by worldly ambitions? It's really not a laughing matter. If Christ's kingdom is life and peace and forgiveness and fellowship with God, Satan's kingdom is the opposite. The scenes of demon possession in the Bible are ugly, right? Demons trying to throw people into water to drown them, into fire to burn them. Think of the, the man on the, across the, the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Gadarenes. When Jesus arrives there, he's, he's naked, he cuts himself, he screams out, he lives among the grave stones, grave, the tombs. And this is the abundant life Satan gives you. Wonderful. And though today there are many owned by Satan in our culture who are rich and seem to have it all together and look very happy. Their souls are vacuous. They have no hope and no future. Satan's realm is ugly, and the enemy is real. He's waging a war against the kingdom of Jesus and therefore against the church. Jesus said to to Simon on this night of his arrest, he says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And it's interesting that the you, he's asked for you to sift you. The you in the Greek is plural. He's asked for you all. He's coming for all you disciples tonight. And he wants to sift you, which in Christ's culture was a rather violent thing. A woman puts grain into a sieve and she takes it by both hands and she shakes it vigorously. To separate the wheat and the chaff. The enemy wants to sift Christ's people. But Jesus says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We are weak, the enemy is strong, but our great comfort is that we have a man at God's right hand, our friend, who prays for us. And here this morning, Christ is calling us to join in the prayer. Father, destroy the works of the devil, protect your church, and bring down your enemies.
The only way that God is all in all is if these enemies are squashed. The prayer for the kingdom is a militant prayer. If anybody says, I just don't have the stomach for fighting, well, you got to pray for it then because the kingdom of Christ is a militant kingdom because there's an opposite side. It's not equally ultimate. There's not two equally ultimate powers in the world, good and evil. No, there is the sovereign creator, almighty God, who is holy, righteous, and just. And then there is wickedness. And how wickedness came into the world is a great mystery, isn't it? We don't know the answer to that. How sin came into God's good world, the Bible doesn't tell us. But we know it wasn't the work of God. And we know it's wicked. And we know it's armed against the kingdom of Jesus. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, it's not some soft petition that, Lord, we pray niceness would just blanket the earth. No, it's actually a prayer that God would crush the heads of his enemies. That he would destroy every conspiracy against his word. Because some enemies are eternal enemies. We pray for unbelievers that they would turn and be saved. But we recognize that wherever there are eternal enemies, there will never be peaceful coexistence. The new heavens and the new earth will be vacated of all the enemies of God and of his people. We're praying for the Lord to triumph. And we're praying with the hope that in Christ we are protected. Because God's name is written upon his people, we are safe. And if God, as he did with Daniel's three friends, wants to throw us into a fiery furnace and protect every hair on our head from being singed, he can do that. And if God wants to, as he did with Daniel, throw them into a den of hungry lions and yet send his angel to shut all their mouths, he can do it. Or if God wants to praise his name in the martyr's death of his people, then he can do it. But he is God, and he is the great king through Jesus Christ. And he will triumph. And that brings us to the last point, the victory of the kingdom. The kingdom's triumph. We're praying all these things. We're praying that, that, that we'd submit to the Lord more so, that the church would increase. That's how kingdom citizens are made. And we're praying the enemies will be put down until your kingdom fully arrives when you will be all in all. Now, that's important if we don't get that last part. Then we lose heart. We look around and say, oh, Satan's winning. This is so terrible. No, there's coming the end when it'll be clear that Christ has triumphed. And if we don't understand this also, that, that we're not there yet, then we're always going to be looking for a utopian world. But you see, there's not perfect peace till Christ Jesus comes back, until Christ returns, until then the wheat and the tares grow together. But on Judgment Day, the angels come to weed to gather out the weeds and burn them and to gather up the grain. Now, this should encourage us in our personal battle against sin because we know it's not a losing proposition. We know that Christ is coming, he is victorious, and we will not be ashamed on that day. And no loss on that day will be an eternal loss but gain. Whatever we've given up in this world is not an eternal loss. It's good for us to remember that. Not one of us on that day will say, well, you know, I wish I would have indulged that sin. I mean, I had opportunity, now it's all over, now here we are in heaven. I, boy, I, you know, I wish I would have done that. 
Nobody's going to say that on that day. Probably say, I, I wish I had never sinned. I wish I hadn't done that. But you see, anything we give up, any self-sacrifice, any turning away from sin now will be just pure gain in that day of Christ's coming. It will be delight. And we're to long for that day and look forward to that day when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness. You know, the, the theologians like to speak of the already and the not yet. The kingdom is already here because Christ has come, and so the reign of God has come through the King Jesus, and yet it's not yet fully here because Christ hasn't come back. And so there's still enemies. There's still disobedience in my heart. I'm still looking for a new heavens and a new earth. But on that day when Christ comes, we'll have the deepest fellowship with the Lord, and we are to look for that. Now, Jesus in Luke chapter 22, on this night of the Passover, the night he's going to be arrested, he says to his disciples in Luke twenty-two fifteen, with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Notice, first of all, that Jesus says, with fervent desire, I have, I've longed to eat this meal with you. Dr. Davis, in his commentary on Luke, writes, Doesn't this verse indicate how much Jesus really liked his disciples and cherished his companionship with them? True, none can deny, none can deny they were frequently dense, muddle-headed, naive, and foolish, but Jesus didn't merely put up with them, he genuinely prized them. We should not forget this. It is encouraging, isn't it, that Christ... If he is our joy, the joy of the kingdom, it's remarkable that his people are his joy. He delights in them. In fact, so much so that he goes on to say that he's not going to eat of this again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then in giving them the wine for the Lord's Supper, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, what's Jesus saying? Well, he seems to be saying that he we'll no longer enjoy the banquet until we arrive. Davis suggests it's kind of like if you have family arriving from out of town for, for the holiday meal or something, and they, they call and say they're delayed, they're stuck in traffic, they're, well, they're going to miss, they're supposed to eat at 2 or eat at 5, and they're not here. Do we just go ahead and eat without them now? We say, well, no, no, keep, keep the food warm, let's wait. It just isn't the same without them. Jesus is saying to us here that, that he's not going to eat without us. The banquet above won't begin till we get there. Christ is longing that all of his citizens shall be gathered at the banquet hall table together. It won't be the same unless they're all there. And so he's keeping watch and he's working and he's ruling all things towards that grand day of consummation. When he will gloriously transform us and remake the heavens and the earth. And put down all his enemies, even the enemy of death. And then we'll enjoy that banquet in store for us. What a day on that day to be presented to the Father. This is what Christ will do. He's going to present us to the Father as transformed citizens who are now perfectly fit to live in the kingdom. When we get to that kingdom, we will not have any rogue desires. Right now, our lives are filled with pretentious, rogue desires to do our own thing and be our own king. 
But when we are transformed at Christ's appearing, we will be perfectly fit to be presented to God as the perfect citizens of his forever kingdom, the joyful children of God. Until until that day comes, now we get a foretaste, a foretaste, and the Lord's Supper is that foretaste. It's a taste of the future breaking into the present in which the joy of the banquet hall to come is brought into the present life in the midst of our troubles and our worries about the country or about our grandchildren or about our finances or in our struggles against our personal sin that we can't seem to overcome, the joy of the day to come breaks in upon our life below, and we eat and drink, Jesus says, doing this until he comes. Until he comes. A little foretaste, a little more, a little more, step by step, as history is racing towards its glorious day of fullness when Jesus Christ comes back. Because you see, the victory is guaranteed. The decisive battle has already been fought at the cross and won by Jesus, who paid for our sins, took away our guilt, and has removed from Satan the power to accuse us before the Father. At the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus triumphed. As we sing, the strife is o'er, the battle done. The victory of life is won. The song of triumph has begun. Alleluia. So eat and drink yet again today until he comes. Knowing that Jesus Christ is waiting for you. Knowing that Jesus Christ is ruling for his glory and for your sake. Knowing that no enemy in this world is stronger than the Lord who laid down his life and who arose triumphant. Eat and drink knowing that Christ cherishes your fellowship, that the Father longs to see all his children gathered, that the kingdom to come, despite all the attacks of the evil one, is the one kingdom that will fill the new creation and will last forever and ever. What a day it will be to live under the perfect rule of the Lord Jesus Christ with a perfect heart. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's bow together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we pray that you would help us to learn to pray, thy kingdom come. Oh, Father, break our affections from the kingdoms of men, that we would love your kingdom above all else. Break our affections from the paths of Satan and darkness and all the sinful pleasures of this world. May we love your kingdom. May we long for it. May we live for it. We pray it would come inside of us. We pray it would grow in this world. We pray, Lord, that you'd cast down your enemies. They'd all be put beneath the feet of Jesus. On that day, finally, when he hands the kingdom over to you, that you, O God, may be all in all. Yes, we pray, Father. Send forth the Savior. In his name we pray it. Amen.